0: Dr. Cromie uses historical insight and cultural inspiration to empower audiences to rethink and reimagine how they lead, teach, pastor, and parent. With over 30 years of training experience, Dr. Cromie is a sought-after speaker, both nationally and internationally. He has also penned over a dozen books on leadership, culture, history, classroom management, and creative communication, including his most recent book, Gen Tech, An American Story of Technology, Change, and Who We Really Are. Chromie enjoys collecting antique technology, pop culture, watching baseball, riding his motorcycle, traveling, and writing. He lives with his wife, Linda, an adorable dog, and an ornery cat in the small town outside of Boise, Idaho. Welcome to the podcast, Rick.
1: Hey, that's pretty good, Dana. You read it just like the way I wrote it. Yes, All the proper inflections and, you know, positive points you were making. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for having me on your show. Appreciate it.
0: Well, tell me about a time when you were in the trenches and
1: managed to crawl out. Wow. Well, I've been teaching uh, professionally for about thirty years now, and uh, I spent about fifteen of those years in the university. Uh, mm-hmm. Smaller. Uh, these are Christian colleges. That was the my arena in particular, and uh, there were a number of times when uh, you know I was I was in the trenches. But probably the the one that um, the one that really kind of reminds me the most was when I moved to to administration and uh, mm-hmm. found myself completely. Um, um, well, it was new. It was new to me. I was yeah. learning. There were some things I was learning, but in the end, uh, it, the job didn't really fit. And as a consequence of that, um, I I re- actually lost the job. And from that point forward, starting to move into uh, really a dark season of my life where I was you know, I, I really didn't have a position. I was overeducated. I had my doctorate. I was overexperienced. 45 years of age. I was also considered too old yeah, for, a few, yeah. for a lot of this stuff. And so that was kind of my uh, in the trenches moment where, you know, there, there are a lot of times, you know, day to day where you're dealing with grades and you're dealing with uh, students in particular or parents. I even in the college environment, I still dealt mm-hmm. with parents. Yeah. I mean, those things happen. But the bottom line is that, uh, you know, it was it was probably that dark moment of the soul where I found myself completely out of education, wanting to be in it. And it just wasn't happening for me.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so what happened um, when you got laid off? Did you go back into teaching and and work? How did you kind of work your way back to where you are now?
1: Well, the reality is I never did get back into academia full time. Mm I've I've. I basically reinvented myself. I'm a, everybody, you know, when I was a kid, I had teachers that told me that I had a big mouth. So I thought, well, maybe I'd have find a way to make that, make some money off that big mouth that I have. And, uh, I, I started reinventing myself as a writer and a speaker. I did some tutoring. Uh, I did some, um, uh, you know, substitute teaching along the way. I did some, uh, um, some other types of, of the teaching, but I started a educational services in 2017, a nonprofit okay. work. And, you know, I just kind of reinvented myself to where I was doing training. And, you know, and then most recently, I'm a I'm a historian and a speaker for American Cruise Lines. And I do lectures all summer long on the and Snake Rivers and the Pacific Northwest talking about Lewis and Clark and the Oregon Trail. So that's how I recovered from that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And you said that, like, just through some of your speaking experiences that you got connected with somebody who put you in touch with the cruise line correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, the cruise line kind of came out of, uh, I I wasn't really, I was looking for a second job last spring, trying to, you know, we're all having a little bit of a pinch right now with our finances due to inflation and and fuel costs. And I, I was just looking for, well, is there a second job out there that I would enjoy? You know, I want to do something that I enjoy. And I was watching antiques roadshow one night on PBS and there was a commercial for American cruise lines. And the next thing I know I'm clicking on the links and find that they're looking for guest speakers and wow. Okay. Well, I can do that. And you know, this summer I got a master's degree in Lewis and Clark history and Oregon Mm -hmm. trail history uh, with the studies that I did for that in order to be prepared as a speaker. But I, you know, It just kind of happened. That one did. But a lot of my work has been by having doors open because of degrees, because of experience, and things just kind of happen that way. But, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've had a wealth of experience and kind of different levels. And we're going to talk a little bit about some of your uh, philosophies on behavior first, and then we'll talk a little bit about the generational gap in gen tech your book but um let's talk about just uh, um motivation of students because that's that's a big topic in classrooms and the schools today and um in your opinion how how, do, how can students be motivated authentically and honestly and how do we motivate learning naturally
1: yeah and that is really my heartbeat message to mm-hmm. the teachers and not just teachers but leaders anybody who leads Another person, let's just say, use the word influence as another person. Yeah. Teachers obviously influence parents influence, employers influence. So this, this this goes across the board. It's really how to motivate anyone, anywhere, anytime. But um several years ago, I was um I was becoming convicted of my my bribery approach to motivating, you know, learning and, and mm-hmm. um basically behavior, you know, and, and what I mean by that is I would I was the king of the gimmicks, you know, I'll give you this, I'll give you this, if you do this, and if you do it right, if you do it perfectly, I'll give you this, and I, I, you know, I, I kind of became convicted of that, so I, I did a heart search, I did a soul search, and I did a, I did a real introspective look at my craft of teaching, and I put together what I call the growls, G-R-O-W-L-S, and I think the reason I got that on that acronym was because I was hungry, Dana. I was, I was actually hungry at that moment. And I felt my stomach growl a bit that day. And I was thinking about these internal needs. I was reading William Glasser's control theory. I was looking at, uh, you know, the, 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 the stages or the steps of uh, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and such. And so I was really studying internal needs, not the okay. external, internal and it was from that, that I developed this, this acronym of the growls and I'll just give them to you briefly and let you chew on which ones you want to talk about from there. But uh, basically these are six inner needs that every person has. But when you think about it from a student in the classroom, they, they really can be uh, important to producing uh, positive learning and a productive learning environment. Uh, the G is grace. Uh, I, I, that's kind of a religious word I come out of I'm a pastor so I come out of a, of a religious background but I think deep down we all want some grace and mm-hmm. that that's the idea of unconditional unmerited favor uh, it's surprise it's beauty grace is a, just kind of a beautiful word and I think in the learning environment this is the hardest one to develop uh, because it kind of sprouts naturally, but if you got your antenna up and you're constantly working towards environments of grace, you can produce them, and it's very attractive to the learner. The others are more tangible. The yes. R, the R is relationship. Deep down. We have to have positive and productive relationships in the classroom, whether it's peer-to-peer, whether it's between the student and the teacher, whether it's between teachers and the parents. I mean, these relationships all work together to create Mm -hmm. learning. The O is ownership. This this breaks down to choice, breaks down to being in control. Students want to have some control. They want to have some... uh, some contribution really uh, Mm -hmm. to learning. And this could be a little bit difficult because of the curriculum. You know, a lot of times in education, the curriculum is in control, but the wise teachers, the smart teachers, the, the great teachers know how to make that curriculum that they're using, not be the one in control, but allows the student to have some control in that process as well. The W is worth deep down, we all want to be valued. We all want to be validated. We all want to have a voice. We want to have a vision uh, that's accepted, that's uh, anointed, that's affirmed, (laughs) however you want to look at it. And when you think about those four environments, grace, relationship, ownership, and worth, G-R-O-W, what's that spell? Grow. Grow, right. Yeah. If you want to grow your classroom, if you want to grow your students, focus on these needs. These are the power needs. These are the power needs. Uh, These are the ones that really ignite and and attract. So grace, relationship, ownership, worth. The L and the S, I call them the primitive needs. These are the most basic needs of all. L is laughter. We all want to be in environments that are pleasing and pleasurable Entertaining, yes. And I call it edutainment. That's what we do in the classroom. Yeah. We do edutainment or edutainment. You know, we, yeah. we use we use pleasure as a way of, of exploding the the neurons in the brains. We know that when our brains are are learning in a fun way, an enjoyable way, that they're literally literally lighting up like a Christmas tree. And and then there's the S. This is the one that Maslow and and um, uh, Glass are both hit upon. That's security. Deep down, we want to feel secure, secure in the classroom, emotionally, physically, uh, mentally, and, and such. Uh, so th- it's why we can't have bullies in the classroom. You know, we have to watch that emotional climate in the classroom because that all shuts down these, the learning process. Uh, when you're afraid in the classroom, you're not going to be learning. When you're worried in the classroom, you're not going to be learning. When you're under stress in the classroom, you're not going to be learning. So those are the primitive needs. So I don't know where you want to go from there, but that's the six needs laid out. I call them the growls. They're internal. You got to feed them. You create environments. You don't massage the message. You feed the environment.
0: Well, from what I'm understanding, um, if you don't fulfill these needs, that's why children and teens act up in the classroom.
1: Yeah, I, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Uh, you will have misbehavior as a result of, yeah. of these needs not being met. Uh, that 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 goes without saying.
0: And is this something that teachers, um, uh, like you've mentioned, a couple of authors? Uh, how can they educate themselves more on really working to fulfill these needs? Because we talk a lot about social emotional learning these days and mm-hmm. practices what you're talking about uh, covers some of those things, but you've added some more, um, you know, things to think about here. So what would be a first step for a a teacher to do to, to basically learn more about how to implement this in their classroom?
1: I I think it starts by just being aware, Dana. I I mean, awareness is 90% of the, of the, the solution here. For me, for me, once I landed on this and it, it became concrete I literally walk when I'm, let's just take a substitute situation because I get, you know, when I'm substituting, I'm walking often into a classroom that I don't know these students at all. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm really at a disadvantage because, and, and every student knows that by the way, substitute teaching is very, very hard uh, for that reason. But when I walk into the classroom, I'm thinking these particular needs. And in particular, I'm thinking of the, of the primitive ones to start with you know, when I, that first three minutes I'm in the classroom, I'm thinking about how can I help them to feel secure with me? How can I create security here? And how can I make it uh, uh, be a a pleasurable moment where they're going to go, Hey, listen, this guy's a little different, different in a good way. You know, he's fun. He's, he's enjoyable. I, I I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to let him have a a moment. I'm going to, I'm going to let him have his moment. And I got to tell you, then if you start, you know, building relationships. And that's one of the things I do as a substitute teacher. I, uh, yes, I've got the lesson I have to get across, but I work very hard to learn their names. I always Mm -hmm. tell teachers, that's your first job as a teacher is to learn your students' names, you know, because the name itself is so powerful for that Mm -hmm. relationship moment. You know, if you know a student's name, they, they are drawn, they are drawn to you just because of, of the fact you know their their name and then you just get to know them personally what do you like and 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 if i can do that in a in an hour of a classroom plus give them moments of of affirmation you know uh you know, try to do that as personally as possible you can't do that with everybody but you try to create just try to create these environments i've done that as a substitute teacher you know, I've done it with my my teaching staff over the years. You know, I've I've done it with uh, with various students from from kindergarten students all the way up to college, even graduate students that I teach now uh, in the online environment can be done this way.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you can really fit that into any context, as you're mm-hmm. saying, making that effort even as daily sub it goes a long way. Um, yeah. and, you know, uh, having them have a good day when the teachers out. Uh, let's shift a little bit and talk about uh leadership styles uh so you uh talk about different um uh teaching styles but you align them towards um like game show host and give them different names so how do they how do these styles cooperate and create conflict
1: well yeah we are shifting gears at this point aren't yeah. we uh, <laughs> the uh, uh yeah th- this is another part of my um, of my study over the years. Yeah. I've always been fascinated with the psychology of the classroom and um, the development of leaders. I'm a, I'm a leadership guy anyway. Yeah. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a leader of leaders. I'm a teacher of teachers. So I enjoy uh, just looking, pulling the curtain back, if you will, uh, about and answering that big question, who am I? And not just answering it, who am I, but why am I? Why do I do the yeah. things that I do? And when it comes to this particular area, we're talking about style or personality. you know it can it can be one of those things that people can get a, a lot of confusion. there can be a lot of uh, difficulty understanding it, mostly because I think there are people out there that try to make it hard. I, I mean, some of the names we have, some of I mean, when you look at personality styles and leadership styles and teaching styles, I mean, you got, animals out there i mean i'm a dog and you're a cat or i'm i'm the color orange and you're the color yellow and and then you ask somebody well what in the world does that even mean you know and they go i don't know but i'm a yellow and that's all that matters i'm a yellow yay, yellow Uh, and so here's here's the bottom line when you look at people throughout the course of history when you look at them in the present when you look at them psychologically and physiologically they really only break down into two main areas they're either an active personality or they're a passive personality okay. they're either extroverted or introverted I mean and you may have ranges in those in those directions but they lean either one way or the other so you're either yeah. extroverted or introverted active passive that's one way. The other way is more about how you process information, how you accept, how you move information and, and stuff through the brain. And in that way, you can either be more cognitive or emotive. You can be more sequential or, you know, just differing, uh, you know, uh, having more, uh, you know, just more, more, uh, I lost my word there that I like to use. But, you know, you, you bounce around. You know, it's, it's not it's not a sequential idea. And so when I break these down, I break them down into these four areas because they create literally a nice little four area matrix, if you will. And so if you look at the emotive active type of a person and let's look at it in the concept of teaching, since that's our okay. topic today. Uh, you have what I call a game show host type of teacher. Mm -hmm. These are emotive teachers. They're very connected to the emotional connections in the room, but they're also active. And because of that, they they can be a little bit flighty. Um, sometimes these type of teachers have an almost an ADD perspective themselves where you know, squirrel you know and they're gone. Uh, they, they like to chase rabbits and, and such, but they do it for the purpose of learning. They believe, and I think rightly so, this is their style that if they can inspire because this is their major uh, strength, they are able to inspire. and students that follow them love these type of teachers. They're inspirational. Um, the only problem is sometimes they don't always lead in a way that's productive that mm-hmm. goes along with the curriculum. You might say. Mm-hmm. On the other side of the active uh, angle of it, you have what I call the chef. The chef okay. is all about achievement. It's all about you know getting the job done. They're active. They're mission oriented, um, and they're they're sequential. So they have they have the ability. These type of students. And teachers as well, they have the ability to see the process. They see the plan. They see you got to do this first and this first and this first first. And that's why they love things like syllabi. They love uh, ordered learning. They love to see structure in the classroom. The sequentials do. And I call this this one the chef. Chefs are all about recipes. They yeah. they want to cook by the recipe. They don't want to get off recipe. They know exactly what the recipe is. They stay on task with it and they get it done because the whole thing is about achieving, getting that food out to the table and, and making it good. So those are the active um, sides of the leadership or the teaching style. On the passive side, you have the passive or the, the sequential Uh, uh, passive I call the stage manager and this is this is interesting because the stage managers if you think about them as a as a type of personality they're not on stage they don't like the stage you know the, the game show host is all about the stage stage manager is backstage but they have something in their hand that is critical to the success of the play and that's called the script and You know, you know, if you've ever been in theater, you know what I'm talking about. Your stage managers constantly are saying to you, stay on script. Directors are doing that, too. But the stage managers are the one that when you get backstage and you've gone off script a little bit, they'll let you know. And that's what this type of personality does, too. They're they're passive. They they're, they're they're the ones that will sit at a teacher's meeting and not say a word. Uh, but they're analyzing every single thing. They're taking notes on every single thing. These are the type of students that will sit in your class and and they'll take notes and and they're just they sit in the same seat every single day. They like um, to have that that conformity. They they like that that sameness, if you will, uh, to the classroom. And these teachers are the same way. Now, the emotive passive teacher uh, is the one that uh, I call the counselor. They're okay. very to relationships in the room again that's that emotional side they they like the relationships uh, but they don't like risk uh they that this this idea they they tend to be because they're emotive and because they're passive they don't like risk they don't like anything that might cause failure they don't like anything that might cause uh trouble uh and and if you start thinking about these and this is where conflict comes in you know counselors and you know, the chefs are directly opposite of each other. They have nothing in common. So when you look at them, you can see why if you have a a chef teacher and you have counselors, a counselor's type of student, someone who's a passive emotive student, how that chef can actually crush that student. You mm-hmm. know, they can they could literally crush it. It's my way or the highway. You know, if you can't get on board, get out of here. You can see how a chef can become very abusive, even in how they teach. Doesn't have to be. The chefs are about achievement. The stage managers are about insight. They love insight. They love thinking about stuff. You know, the counselor is about cooperation. And again, that game show host is about inspiration. But you can see that battle there. On the other side, you know, you put a game show host. Um, I always say it's it's probably a good idea if you want to see this work. It's not a bad idea either to put a game show host teacher in the same classroom with a stage manager teacher. Mm-hmm. Because when you think about opposites, just like in a marriage relationship, we tend to be attracted to our opposite. Absolutely. And that's because we're looking for the weaknesses to be filled. Uh, what, what, is, what is weak here, you know, the other person can make that a strength. And that's what happens when you put a stage manager and a game show host together. They fill each other's strengths, but they'll also battle like cats and dogs in the process. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and the game show host will be all over the map. He'll be about inspiration. No, we got to do this because, hey, it's from the heart here. And the stage manager is going, no, think about this a little bit. Don't jump off the cliff yet. You know, we don't need to do that yet in this situation. So, I mean, you can see how this plays out in the, the conflicts that start to emerge. And I like my teachers to think how to think of it from this perspective. You have a style, and so do your students. And if you can yeah. figure out which students you're battling, they probably have the opposite uh, learning style as your teaching style. So if you got a game show host, uh, they're gonna have a lot of problems with a stage manager student. They just they just don't mix. it's like oil and water mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something a lot of uh, administrators don't necessarily, uh, think of is like really mm-hmm. identifying the teachers or the staff learning styles, and this really puts it into perspective. Um, you know, I can see uh, different personalities come to mind when you talk about these uh, these styles, so it's really interesting. Um, let's shift again and talk a little bit about your book uh, called Gen Tech, um, which you have displayed there on the screen, um, and you talk about d- different generations, and I wanted to kind of stick with the generation um, uh, of the last 30 years so you have the net generation uh those born since 1990 you have the i generation uh those born since 2000 and the robo generation those born throughout This podcast is a proud member of the teach better podcast network better today better tomorrow and the podcast to get you there explore more podcasts at www.teachbetterpodcastnetwork.com now let's get back to the episode since 2010 So what are the implications for employers, educators, and other organizational leaders for people within these generations?
1: Well, before I dive into the implications and applications of this, let me kind of reframe and give the reasons why. Uh, we have to think differently. Uh, the whole reason I wrote GenTech was because I've been doing generational analysis. I'm a cultural historian, by yeah. the way. That's that's where my doctorate is at. Uh, I've I've studied. Uh, uh, in that case, it was leadership in the emerging culture. So I'm a cultural historian, and I've been studying generations. Really, since 1980. So it's been almost 40 years of looking at generations. I know I don't look that old, but I really am. Uh, I've been seeing it for a long time, talking about it for a long time. And when I first got into it, the, the it was because there was this new generation that was being born called the millennials. Now we didn't call them millennials back then. We didn't really yeah. call them anything. We didn't know what to call them. Eventually they were na- nicknamed generation Y, but even that was a nineties type of moniker. Yeah. Uh, there was a, There was a book uh, in 1991 by William Strauss and Neil Howe called Generations, and they used the word millennials to describe this subset of kids born since, in their case, 1982. Uh, But, you know, what happened in the nineties was we had a fast track, you know, at that point it became very popular to name all have all the generations named baby boomers yeah. had to have a name. Gen X had to have a name millennials, you know, and then by 1995, we were already putting an, a name on, on the, the next generation. We call them Gen Z. They were still in diapers. Yeah. And my argument's always been that you really can't tell the, the characteristics or even name a generation till they've had at least 10 years after their yeah. birth. You got to give them some time. Yeah. <laughs> you know, baby boomer, baby boomer works because there was time there. We can go, oh yeah, the demographics, there was a baby boom, you know, back in the, in the early forties that, that, you know, helped us out here. Um, Gen X, nobody really understands Gen X. That was a uh, Gen X is a is one of those monikers that just got, got slapped on our generation because uh, uh, it's like napalm, you know, getting put on you. You know, it just it just stuck. And <laughs> uh, what are you going to do with it? But it means nothing when I when yeah. you think about Gen X, what does it actually mean? Nothing. Yeah. Uh, millennials at least have some meaning. It was it was to target those kids that were going to graduate in the year two thousand, so they were millennial kids. Okay, I get that. That makes sense. But Gen Z. Gen Z comes along and it's like whoa. So by the early 2000s, by the mid 2000s, I realized that the, that they weren't Gen Z at all. I mean, those kids, especially those ones born after the year 2000, they were being impacted by particular technology. I called them the i technologies: the iPod, the iPad, the yeah. iTunes, the iPhone, social media. So that was more appropriate. If you want to understand generations, look at them. And this is what my book is all about, Dana. It's about saying, hey, listen, it's not a demographic. That's not what makes you who you are. It's the technology that you come of age to. Yeah. So you come of age between the ages, years 10 and 25. So when you think about that, those 10 and 25, well, someone who's born in the 1950s and 1960s is going to experience those coming of age years with space and television. Someone coming of age in the 60s and 70s, like I did, you know, is going to experience uh, maybe a little bit of space as well. But cable television, uh, video games, those were the technology that kind of grooved our generation uh, millennials were grouped by the cell phone, the personal computer, uh, the internet. Uh, and then, and then you get, you know, again, to these, the year 2000, you're talking about the eye technologies. And then finally uh, in 2010, you know, I finally, cause I wrote the book in 2019, I felt like now it's time to name this new generation. And if you're listening closely, you understand that I'm not putting generations back to back to back to back mm-hmm. as classically it's done. You know, baby Mm -hmm. boomers are born between these dates. And then the very next year we have a new generation being born. I don't agree with that. I think that's faulty assumption. I think it messes with a lot of stuff and people who live on the edges do not like it. I'm born in 1963. Oh, Mm -hmm. I just gave away my age, but I got to tell you, being born in 1963, I've always been called a baby boomer and yet I never felt a part of the baby boom generation. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, So. I've called this new generation born since 2010, the robo generation, the wow. robotics generation. And it's because they're going to be framed in the next, really, they're being framed right now by it because they're 10 years into it. Yes. So the, the youngest ones are already experiencing it. They're going to be framed by what I call the hair technologies. Now that has nothing to do with my head up here. It has everything to do with H-A-I-R. Okay. H A I R. is holographic technology AI, artificial intelligence technology, and then the R is robotics. Those three technologies are going to revolutionize learning. Let's just keep it on the learning focus right now. Education is going to totally be transformed in the next 10 years around holographic, artificially intelligent, robotic technologies. And, you know, from there we can go a number of different ways, but that's kind of, that's really why I wrote the book was I was, I was frustrated at this whole idea that we're, we're doing, we're naming kids after the alphabet here. In fact, the newest generation, when I was doing research for the book, I said, what are we calling this new generation born, you know, since 2005, 2010, however you want to put it. And they're calling them the alpha generation. We're literally going back to the beginning of the alphabet. That's the A generation. <laughs> I'm going X, Y, Z, A. You know, this doesn't make any sense, Dana. And and you know, that's why most authors write books. We're just mad. We're we're just mad.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, you you've you've given a lot of information, kind of on how these, uh, these decades, uh, we you kind of mentioned since uh, 2000. Um, you know, what's framed by those decades and what people are coming of age with. Um, You know, you said that a generation um, is framed by the cultural shifts um, and that um, it's more than a micro shift. So as you think about this um, robo generation, I mean, and then maybe even the generation that uh, has, you know, people that are being born now that, you know, have been born since the 2020s right yeah. Would we call that the pandemic generation <laughs> I mean, you know what are we thinking about like yeah. in terms of like changes like you know what's at the forefront right because we we still can't predict uh like you said the what the hair technologies how they how those are going to play out by the time um students born in 2010 graduate right. from high school by the time right. college Right. But, um, so it's kind of, yeah, it's an interesting topic to think about, like, uh, you know, like you said, it's, it's kind of better to name them after they've been around for a while. Right? Well, yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And, and let me, let me, I want to make sure I'm clear here. Yeah. I believe a generation is framed by the technology they come of age to. Now, when you talk about cultural shifts, yeah. uh, we have cultural shifts all the time. Um, we have generational shiftings that go on. And in fact, when you think about analyzing generations, I often I often say it's not what you remember, it's what you yeah. don't remember that kind of demarcates your generation. Yeah. For example, the generation that I call the ITECs and even the robotics generation, but let's just take the ITECs, those yes. born since year 2000, they do not remember September 11th, 2001. It yes. will not be in their frame. They will not have that. When you when you look at uh, millennials they don't recall the challenger exploding in 1986 they were too young for that the challenger explosion was something that was not in their frame of reference but for those of us who lived through it we remember it well how we mm-hmm. remember where we were at mm-hmm. this is why I was never a baby boomer i do not remember john f kennedy's assassination mm-hmm. every baby boomer remembers where they were at when that assassination happened yeah. you know and of course, the generation, the baby boomers themselves don't remember the end of World War II, the bomb falling on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the atomic bomb. So, you know, we all have these generational marker events yeah, yeah. That, that kind of define us. And and so when you look at at them, there, there there are certain types of cultural shiftings that go on. And you know, really with the with this youngest generation, I'm not I'm not prepared yet. I, I don't think you can really start making hard and fast, you know, um, rules as far as be, of the coming of age because when you look at coming of age, that's a that's ten to twenty five. That means yeah. the ones that are born at the end of the twenty year period, it still goes out another twenty five years after that. So like my book, it starts in 1900, but it goes to the year 2055, because that's when the robo generation born in 2010 finally finishes coming of age as young adults. That's a long time in the future. So it's hard to be prescriptive. It's hard to yeah. be a, a more than a, maybe a forecaster. And it's definitely why I don't name a generation until uh, myself anyway, in my context, until you know, about 2030, we should be able to see what type of... Um, What type of technologies are now emerging for those being born post-COVID? Who knows what that could be? That could be a technology not even invented yet Mm -hmm. that is is coming. Transformative in that way. I do know this, Dana. I do know this. Every technology that I find in the book, with the exception of one, uh, every technology is a communication type of technology. We have been transformed by the technologies where we communicate with one another. The only generation that's not had a uh, had that was um, was the very first one. They were a transportation and telephone tech um, tech type of generation, 1900 to 1920. It was transportation, automobiles. And really, you could make an argument if you wanted to that that generation also, because the automobile, the airplane shortened distances, it allowed people to communicate and really get outside their boxes and connect in a different way. You probably I'm not I'm not hard and fast if that isn't the type of communication as well. But when you look at the other ones, it's, it's they're wrapped around things like uh, the telephone again or motion picture or radio or television, um, even even space had, a, had the satellite, the communication uh, technology, cable television, Internet, cell phone, personal. Commu- those are all it, those are all communication technologies. Uh, mm-hmm. Even even artificial intelligence is about about technology that communicates with us, that okay. learns from us. It's, it so, is fascinating.
0: Yeah. You talked a little bit about like um, maybe something will be marked, you know, by the pandemic occurring either medically or just kind of shifts in the way people are thinking in terms of climate change uh, and other things that are hot topics today. But do you think the pandemic has increased the likelihood for generational shifts to happen um, in terms of uh, how how you're naming the generations? Um how, how might that occur in the future?
1: Do you maybe think you'll be writing a follow-up? <laughs> well, again, when you, as a historian, we look back and we look yeah. for patterns. Yeah.
0: You know, that's
1: what a weather forecaster does is he looks back for patterns in the in the weather. And that's what a historian does. That's mm-hmm. what a futurist does. I've been called yeah. a futurist as well. And here's here's my take on that. I, I, I don't think there's been any type of fast tracking. Yeah. Uh, I, I felt back in the year 2000, in the early 2000s, that there was something big that was going to come, that was going to rapidly move us to a digital cyber culture. Yeah, I didn't know what it was. I thought it might be an economic crash of some sort, mm-hmm. something that would would change how we communicated, how we interacted, and such. Maybe a uh, maybe a certain type of uh, maybe a war or something. That usually that's what does it in the past. Those type of uh, events. But uh, I did not expect a virus to do it. Uh, that was that was something that kind of but I, I've been predicting something was going to move us this way. So these type of shifts and, and we've been moving towards a wholly digital culture since the 1990s, really, you know, since the 1980s. Uh, millennials, uh, that generation also has a very strong digital component to them. Um, and they but they were pre Internet, the Internet, the cyber communications you know, they eventually evolved things like social media and, you know, this. We, we do everything now by the internet. You know, even education is done by the internet, online learning. You know, in the year 2000, I was working at a school and we had a conversation about this. And I, I asked this, you know, we were thinking about what should we be in the year 2020? And I told the school, which was a very small school at that time, you know, what we ought to do is we ought to sell off all of our buildings and reinvest it into technology and become the first- school in our area that uses, um you know, online learning. Let's be the leader in online learning because by the year 2020, you know, Wired Magazine, even in the year 2000, it was like 95% of students in the year 2000 went to brick and mortar schools. Only 5% did any type of online learning. And they predicted by 2020, it would flip. That whole number yeah. would flip. 95% yeah. would be online. And that was, that was fascinating to me because yeah. if you have that type of a flip, that means the brick and mortar school is on, you know, I would say right now it's, it's on, it's on notice. Um, I I personally don't know and don't believe probably in 30 years, we'll have a brick and mortar school environment. That's just, that's my thinking on this. I We are moving towards. And into a digital world we're seeing the book the book is disappearing like crazy i know you got books behind you in your in your um in your thing and i love books i have books all over this office in here but the book is disappearing and it's being replaced by digital formats and th- that's good because you can yeah. put a lot of books in a backpack that mm-hmm. carry, you can carry mm-hmm. it in your phone now you know you can carry yeah, your library yeah. on your phone
0: yeah Which, well it's like you say um like you know everybody was thrust into online learning because of the virus but also the fact that even though you know students are um you know that we still have a lot of students that choose to do online or they feel, feel like online learning is best for their learning needs but even in a brick and mortar school like I work in yeah. you know students if a student says well my computer's dead or you know it's not working it's like well you need it because like the assignments are on the computer you submit the yeah. assignments via google slides you you have to um you know you have to have tech to do like you have the teacher you have the the discussions you know in person with your classmates but when you're doing the writing not very much of that's in paper and you know most districts had already gone to one one one-to-one devices even before the pandemic but definitely now everybody has a device and um, you know if you don't have your your computer charged and and ready to go at the beginning of the school day it's uh it's not easy. So
1: <laughs> You basically got a brick. <laughs> <You> <laughs> yeah. Got a doorstop.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's the, you know, the way of the old books, like, you know, teachers used to teach out of textbooks. And now mm-hmm. a lot of them are just using Google Slides and embedding, you know, videos or other resources, yeah. um, you know, and in a way I see, you know, that's an easier way for students to grasp the information from wherever they're at, not to carry a yeah. textbook home, because, when I started teaching, that was you know a lot of people were bound to the textbook, but I also see it as a way for students, um, especially when you're looking at middle schoolers, they try to copy. You know, a lot of plagiarism going on, right? If they're getting information from the teacher slides or from the website, really not writing enough in their own words. So that's yeah.
1: kind of- Well, i i give you a, i give you a thought on that, you know, because yeah. it's it's interesting that. Um, you know, in education, we're almost like yeah. out of step with the rest of the world on some mm-hmm. things, and mm-hmm. this is this is a classic example that I think maybe we need to rethink. You know, um, think about cheating on tests. I yeah. mean, you know, you think about people cheating, and in education, that's terrible. That's anathema. We don't want we don't want our students cheating. But when they graduate and go out into the real world, uh, that's called creative collaboration. It's not yeah. called cheating anymore. The ability to find the answer from your peers is something that you want. So I actually started doing that with some of my testing, uh, low-level testing in uh, college. I started playing around. I had a test where it was very heavy on content, very heavy on content and what they need to know. And about five, 10 minutes into the uh, test, it was a final exam type of thing. I'd say, time out. I'm going to give you three minutes. You can go to anybody else in this room right now and see if you can get the right answer for the, for the questions that you have. You've got three minutes. And what was interesting is about a third of the, of the students said, no way, I'm not going to do this at all. This is, this doesn't feel right. Yeah. Another third of the students were like, yeah, oh my goodness. Let's, let's, let's you know, they're all over that one. Cause they hadn't, didn't have the answers. Mm-hmm. And then you had a third that were like, okay, this is interesting. But what happened afterwards was I used it as a teaching moment to say, listen, in real life it is more important for me to teach you how to connect and network and find those answers to critically think. Cause in the end, you may find an answer, but that doesn't mean it's the right answer. Just because you have a friend who has an answer on his paper that you think is right. Doesn't mean that answer is right. So you have to be able to critically think and that's what we have to do as educators today. We have all sorts of information. What is right information? What is correct?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the right information? I mean, a lot of students will just hop hardly read content and then think they're, they have the right information because, you know, they they saw it somewhere, but it's not necessarily right. So, yeah, um, it's definitely a lot to think about. And you've given a lot of information about just different areas that you're passionate about and, and the book that you've written and uh, what we can think about as, as uh, educators in terms of our learning styles out of everything we talked about today on the podcast, what's one thing you'd like listeners to remember?
1: Well, there's a, there are probably a several things I could say, but in lieu of our conversations here, I would say scratch your niche. Uh-huh. Scratch your niche. Find what you do well. Find what really, wh- wh- who are you? Discover and just scratch that niche. Yeah. Um, you know, I and, and probably along with that, I, I say think small today. Uh, And in a a big way, a lot of times what we do is we try to think big, but, you know, in our postmodern, post-everything culture, post-COVID culture, small is going to be tall. Yeah. The fast, the the speed is going to be to the small. Uh, If you go to Starbucks, you already know this. If you go to Starbucks and order (laughs) a a small coffee, you have to say, I want a tall. All right. So small is tall already at Starbucks. They figured it out. Uh, But that's going to be the context of learning. It's going to be about small communities. It's going to be about small conversations. It's going to be about small uh, insights and discoveries that are going to spark revolutions, that are going to transform cultures. That's, that's really where we need to be. Think small, scratch your niche.
0: Mm-hmm. I think those are great words to remember. Um, where can people connect with you and find you
1: online? rickcromy.com is probably the best place to connect with me. And I would lo- I do teacher training. I'd love to come to your school. I'd love to come to your conference and, and deliver some of these. I, these are actually all different types of workshops that I do. I would love to be a part of that with you. Uh, please, please think about that. In fact, what I'd like to do for everybody who's listening today is give you a free digital copy of my book, GenTech, Tech. And uh, Dana's going to have the link there. And all you have to do is click on that link and download it. And if you like what you see, make it a Christmas gift. And you can order books from me personally that are autographed. Uh, I actually <laughs> even cover the postage. But if you go through rickcromy.com, uh, you can order a book there and I'll get it to you. You can also order it at Amazon and Barnes and Noble and other fine places that carry uh, great books like GenTech. <laughs> well,
0: it's been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. Learning more about generational change and personalities in education, and all these different things we've talked about. My book, Out of the Trenches: Stories of Resilient Educators, has now been published. Get it now at amzn.to dot t o slash three b seven to z. Again, amzn.to dot t o slash three b seven, eight X two Z. Check out the show notes on Dana to learn more about this guest and links to their social media. Please subscribe, share rate and review wherever you download this podcast, tell your friends and colleagues about it. And if this episode resonates, especially with you, be sure to share it out on social media and tag me at out of